0: Welcome to this episode of the Biotechniques Talking Tech News podcast. I'm Abby, the digital editor for Biotechniques.
1: And I'm Tristan, the assistant editor.
0: On this special CRISPR focused episode, we will be chatting to Theo Roth, a researcher from the University of California San Francisco Mars and Lab. Theo has been making headlines across multiple different news outlets for his groundbreaking work on engineering T cells more quickly and efficiently using novel CRISPR methods.
1: For someone relatively early in his career, Theo is already making waves across the cell engineering space, and there's great promise for his technique in the treatment of cancer and autoimmune diseases. So, welcome Theo, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh,
2: thank you, Tristan
0: and Abby, uh, for having me on. So, first off, when CRISPR first emerged as a genome editing technique in Around 2012, there was a huge level of excitement that surrounded the technique and its potential. Can you just explain to us why this technology was so disruptive at the time and to what extent it's filled those high expectations?
2: Yeah, I think uh, it's an especially interesting question. Uh, When we think about the cell therapy and gene therapy uh, areas, because these are fields that have been around for many decades. And so the question is why has the advent of CRISPR technology changed things? And it's you know, it, it, the simplest way to put it is that you know, CRISPR Cas9 technology is probably the, the single biologic uh, or biotechnique. Method that has absolutely lived up to every every bit of the hype that's been around it, and there's been many uh, techniques in the past couple decades that have uh, you know been claimed to revolutionize therapeutics from antisense oligos to RNA interference and uh, whatever many others, but that were exciting but never you know, lived up to at least the, the speed and, and scale of the
1: change that they promised and CRISPR Cas9 just just has so how are you using CRISPR to advance the field of immunotherapy
2: yeah and so the, the that big promise of CRISPR Cas9 technology has always been has been that it makes genetic modifications of, you know, in our case, human T-cells, but in many other people's cases, uh, plants, uh, model organisms, it makes it much, much easier uh, than it's ever been before. And so as as a cell therapist, we, you know, our fundamental belief is that By modifying and altering the functionality of immune cells, we can reprogram them and direct them against cancers in a way that they don't do naturally in the body. And so that fundamental ability to increase our capacity to make genetic modifications in those cells just gives us much, much more power uh, to actually see that goal of, of making immune cell therapies. And so CRISPR-Cas9 has just accelerated uh, the process. And, you know, whenever you can accelerate the process of, of doing it, that means that we can try more things and we can, um, uh, we can explore the space of potential therapies more quickly. And hopefully that
1: means we can actually develop those therapies faster. Okay. Um, and so, as you say, with working alongside CRISPR, how does your proposed method of, um, of using that CRISPR in, in modifying the T-cells, uh, improve existing CAR T cell therapies. Is it a uh, possible? Uh, is it a possibility that it could begin to address some of the toxicology issues?
2: Yeah, yeah. So the, the CRISPR Cas9 the specific uh, CRISPR methodology that, that we developed is kind of taking advantage of what happens after you use CRISPR Cas9 to make a break in the genome. And so once you target, you use a guide RNA to target a specific site that we introduce uh, the Cas9 protein as a recombinant fully formed protein uh, already complex to its targeting guide RNA, which we call an RNP, but it doesn't matter. Uh, but that all is introduced into the cell and it causes this break. So... But that what happens after that that break uh, is introduced is the important part for us because if we all the what we've figured out how to do is also introduce a DNA template a uh, uh, can be a fairly long stretch of DNA that that has uh, sequences attached to to the ends that allow it to be used to repair that double-stranded break that the CRISPR-Cas9 introduced. So we, we mess up a sequence in the genome, but then because we've, we've introduced a, a DNA sequence that is able to repair that, that break, that, uh, that error that we introduced, then we actually uh, can kind of trick the cell into integrating our new DNA payload at you know, theoretically any site in the genome that we want and so the, uh, you can't go into all the details of it but the, the the whole methodology that we put together and have applied into primary human t-cells uh, the most the most useful uh, cell type so far for cancer immunotherapies has allowed us to to, to integrate that, those new sequences the new functionality new specificities, at very specific targeted sites in the genome uh, very rapidly, and so when he asked about potential safety issues, now the uh, the one of the main differences between what we can do now with these targeted uh, techniques is that we can uh, n- the new DNA that we're adding in that would say encode for a chimeric antigen receptor to make the T cell specific for a tumor instead of going in randomly in the genome and potentially disrupting useful genes or a a very low risk, but potential risk of oncogenic transformations, now we can target that new sequence to a very specific site and have actually for the first time really know exactly where we're putting it.
0: So we have touched quite a bit there on CAR T cell therapies what could be the potential applications on the combination of CRISPR and the immune system outside of cancer therapy?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question because the techniques that we've, we others have been developing around manipulating the genetics of immune cells certainly don't only have applications in uh, cancer immunotherapy. Essentially, any uh, pathologic uh, process that it goes occurs inside the body where immune cells play a role, could be a target for cell therapies based on modifying those immune cells functions. Uh, and that can be cancer, but it could also be autoimmune disease or infectious disease or even things like the neurodegenerative diseases where immune, the immune system does play an important role. If we can have more control over the functionality of these cells, which we now do based on these techniques to modify their genomes, maybe we can discover ways to uh, uh, use those cells to overcome those other types of diseases as well.
1: Okay, interesting. And um, once you've successfully modified the T cells, so either for applications in immunotherapy for cancer or against HIV, for instance, um, how would you plan on then converting it into an applicable therapy?
2: even once you've found a way that you think that you can improve the functionality of the cell, there's still a long road to an actual uh, therapeutic cell product. And that's, you know, that's uh, a good thing and a bad thing. Good because it means that only therapies that are safe and efficacious are actually being given to patients, but it, 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 but it does slow the, uh, the development and, and, uh, you know, bringing into the actual clinic, you know, potentially exciting, promising new therapeutics. But, the, but generally, you know, we have to go through the regulatory process of demonstrating the safety and efficacy uh, in animal models and, uh, and demonstrate to the, the FDA, the patients than existing therapies and has the potential to be uh, more useful and how that looks for gene modified therapies is still kind of a regulatory question that's coming into focus because um, it's certainly a very new field which means that we we need to learn how to, to regulate and safely monitor these therapies as well as you know, to, to, as well as developing them.
1: Okay um and you recently identified um Something called bystander mutations, which result from CRISPR gene editing, which you found in mice. Um, Could mutations such as this um, end up being induced in human cells, like when you're editing T cells? Um, And could this result in issues for your research or maybe a potential setback in something, another issue that you need to address? Yeah,
2: yeah. So this was something that a graduate student. Simeonov in the uh, arson lab at UCSF uh, found when he was generating modif- genetically modified mouse lines for various uh, some research applications. But uh, sometimes, when you know the, the CRISPR Cas9 process, that creates these double-stranded breaks in the genome. Sometimes, uh, sometimes weird things can happen uh, when those double-stranded breaks are repaired. Often it's by introducing small mutations, which is what we actually use in order to introduce knockouts. Sometimes it's by using uh, other pieces of DNA to uh, template off of and repair uh, the break, which is what uh, I've used in order to integrate new pieces of DNA. But sometimes uh, even even more weird things uh, happen at, at more lower frequencies. But in this case, we saw that there could be very, very large duplication events. So, like many KV of DNA could be duplicated, or uh, or large sections could be deleted. And uh, Dimitri you know, characterized this in this mouse model. And I think it's been starting to be seen that similar kind of large scale uh, uh, modifications are sometimes also made. The question becomes whether. Uh, these types of small indels that are introduced or potentially large ones are, are a potential safety issue. And so that comes down really to where in the genome are you targeting? Um, so one of our favorite loci for T-cells is a locus called the T-cell receptor, which is how the T-cell gains its specificity for a given target, whether a given uh, bacteria or virus and or uh, autoimmune antigen whatever that t-cell ends up targeting um so if we have a large deletion at that site then it just lost its ability to be specific for something and so we think that that's not necessarily a big uh safety issue now if you're editing other sites in the genome then we certainly have to consider that and no matter what no matter what we think it would or wouldn't be a safety. Transformation or any other uh, uh, negative outcomes in
0: the genome. So, I do actually have a question with the off-target effects of CRISPR, and mm-hmm. how that is delaying, like, well, it it will take longer to get like FDA approval on those kind of therapeutics. Is it a case of, um, is it like a balancing act between trying to minimize the amount of off-target effects, but then at the same time, the ones that are inevitable, like, trying to prove that they're not going to do any harm. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, yeah. it places strong viral promoters in front of uh, other genes and this happens all over the genome at oncogenes at tumor suppressors you know and so we've now dosed you know thousands if not tens of thousands of patients with gene uh, therapy products um, or gene modified cells and so what we found is that in certain cell types like hematopoietic stem cells this is a huge concern and that led to a, uh, a number of patient deaths in early gene therapy trials because of oncogenic transformations but in in T cells a more mature cell type we actually have yet to see a case of a uh, a t- gene therapy T cell product that introduces uh, that that causes a tumor and so what that means is when we're, when we're moving from these randomly integrating viruses to targeted CRISPR therapeutics, one is that in, in certain cell types like T cells, the risk is probably pretty low. That, doesn't, that still means we have to think about it and, and look at it for every therapy that we think about, but it's probably much lower than if we're talking about um, uh, uh, editing a stem cell population like HSCs. I think the second thing is that, you know, there are, with the CRISPR-Cas9, partly because we kind of know where to look for the off-target, uh, uh effect, we actually can measure them quite well. Whereas previously when, uh, we had randomly integrated viruses, you just didn't have a good, there was no good way or easy way to measure where in the genome all of these viruses were integrated. So you just kind of threw your hands up and said, we can't measure it, so we're not going to. So even, so with the CRISPR-Cas9 the, the, amount of, would let's say off target effects is orders of magnitude less than what you would get with a randomly energetic virus. But because we can observe it now, now it's kind of the newer techniques are being held to a higher standard. And that's, and that's a good thing. But we, I think we, it is, it is something that gets muddied, I think, because because people are looking for and observing the off-target effects in CRISPR, we forget that, that you know all of the previous versions of therapies had even more, it's just that we never looked at them.
0: That makes sense. So it makes a big difference what kind of cell you're looking at and also the fact that people are observing these changes now as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and because it's so easy
2: to, I mean, it's much easier to, to look at and observe these off-target effects. Then, then you know, it means that if you can, then we should, and we should, and understand that. Uh, but, uh, but like I said, I think there's a, it gets, uh, there's a little bit that because you talk about it, then, then people get worried about it. Like you would only be talking about it if it was a problem. And again, you know, every single therapy needs to be, you know, assayed for its safety, and that it, potential off-target effects wouldn't have to be a safety concern. But you know, especially for in cancer immunotherapy, with, when using T cells, the concern is pretty uh, is, is, uh, is fairly low. I think considering what uh, what has already been done um, uh, with with viral vectors that you know have integrated all over the genome already.
0: Yeah, cool. Thank you very much for that answer. That was something that was um, that was bugging me. So. Can you just explain what the advantages of using single-stranded DNA over double-stranded DNA with CRISPR would be?
2: Yeah. Yeah, so the the methodology that we've uh, we've put together, which we, you know, call non-viral genome targeting, which uses the CRISPR Cas9 to target a specific site in the genome and then a DNA template in order to in it, to integrate a new sequence, a new functionality at that target site. Now that DNA template can come in a variety of different flavors. Uh, some groups have actually used viral genomes. Uh, so they both introduced the CRISPR-Cas9 components as well as infect the cells with the virus. Uh, but we've been able to show that we can do it in a completely non-viral way by using either linear double-stranded DNA or linear, or linear single-stranded DNA. And we found that there's advantages and disadvantages for each of these, and it kind of depends on your application. The double-stranded DNA is exceptionally easy to produce, which means that you can try out many different types of modifications and ways to uh, uh, change the functionality of your cells quite quickly. We found that uh, single-stranded DNA, in contrast, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. potentially has uh, some advantages when
1: it comes to reducing the amount of DNA template that
2: integrates at a site other than the target locus that you're looking for, the target site that you want it to integrate at. But it's currently it's much more difficult to produce. So yes, there's trade-offs and advantages for both, but in either case, using non-viral templates like double-stranded or single stranded DNA ends up being much easier and uh, greatly accelerating the pace and the scale of the research that you can do.
0: Brilliant. So, what have been the historical difficulties of working with single-stranded DNA, and how are these starting to be overcome?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. The, um, like I said we found that you know single-stranded DNA can be a potentially ideal non-viral DNA template for integrating new DNA sequences at a specific target site in the genome, but uh, the methods to make uh, large amounts of Single-strand, large single-stranded DNA uh, have, have traditionally been, been uh, pretty time-consuming and, and difficult to use. The issue comes from it's 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 easy to make very short stretches of single-stranded DNA because we can do it by chemical synthesis, the same way that uh, DNA oligos are are produced. But that that tops out at about 100 150 maybe 200 base pairs so if you want to integrate longer stretches then it's easy to produce uh, longer stretches pieces of DNA as double-stranded because you can produce that just by uh, simple PCR or digestions off of a plasmid and get many very very large amounts with single-stranded DNA though because it's it you have this problem of you have to get rid of of half of the template but keep the other half and doing that separation there's a, there's a bunch of different ways by selective exonuclease digestions select like a fit, uh, selective pull downs for one strand versus another but uh it's, it's always been difficult to get very large amounts of product uh, i think the exciting thing is that now there's uh, a couple of uh, commercial providers that, will, uh, that are kind of subsuming, subsuming that, uh, that process and realizing because there's, there's a growing uh, um, interest in single-stranded DNA, both from therapeutic companies and on the research side. And so now these, this is a uh, kind of a template that you can also order in the same way that you order DNA oligos, which, which definitely
1: helps accelerate the pace of research. OK, that's really interesting. Um, and so finally, we're just going to touch on a slightly controversial subject, um, but I just think it'd be really interesting to get your opinion on it. Um, so as with a great deal of disruptive science, CRISPR is a technique that's sort of open for ethical debates, which has kind of been exemplified recently by um, He jin uh use of the technique to edit germline, the germline of two twin girls. What are your opinions on um, Jin Kui's actions and uh, the appropriate exploration of the limits of CRISPR?
2: Yeah, I, I would say that I stand with the vast majority of scientists in the field and saying that uh, going outside of the kind of scientific consensus around the the pace and development of these therapeutics it was a very unwise thing to do and is could uh, very well set back uh the, the, the actual therapeutic applications of germline editing in the future. And I think we have to, we have to be very you know careful about uh, these issues because, uh, for, for many, many different reasons and have to balance the, the potential, the, the dramatic therapeutic potential, of uh, germline editing for the cure of, you know, huge diversity of of monogenic genetic diseases that currently have no treatments versus the very real um, impacts of that type of editing on our society. I think that one of the pioneers of the CRISPR-Cas9 field, Jennifer Doudna, has played a very uh, active and constructive role. In guiding the discussions uh, in scientific consensus around these topics, the specific actions in, in China recently, especially because there was not a, a, a compelling therapeutic utility to what was done, I think border on uh, uh, on research that, or well, certainly is research that should not have been done at at the time, and that, like I said of the Uh, you know, potentially thousands of patients that uh, could have their genetic diseases cured, um, but we also don't want to move forward in such a way that's going to either uh, uh, lose the public trust in the the work that we're doing, or. Uh, lead us down a path towards any of the doomsday scenarios about germline editing that certainly populated the popular press and uh, um, uh, media portrayals of of, of what could happen. So it's uh, it's, it's something that certainly everyone in the field is is very active in thinking about uh, and just deciding how, how our work fits into these broader questions
0: you for your um, very knowledgeable insight on that. Um, so that is a wrap for this episode of the Biotechniques Talking Techniques podcast. Theo, you've been an incredible guest and thank you so much for joining us. We can't wait to see what you get up to in the future.
1: Yeah, thank you, Theo. It's been amazing to hear about um, how CRISPR techniques have been designed and implemented to make a real difference across disease areas. Um, and uh, it's been lovely to get your perspective on some things maybe slightly outside of your research as well so um, yeah join us next time on the Talking Tech News podcast where we will be discussing the latest in PCR